0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let's take a look at the text. It's going to come out of Luke chapter 20, verses 45 to chapter 21, verse 4. And the title of the message is is the widow's, uh, the widow's offering. So we'll go ahead and take a look at that first, and then we'll, I want to say a few things about the preaching schedule before I get into the actual sermon itself. And it reads, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Where are the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats, in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts? Who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I sit, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you in worship of your word, before you, a worship of you through your word at this time. And so we ask for your word to speak truth into our lives, into our hearts, and give us the teachability, the humility, the receptiveness that we need to take your word, your truth, into our hearts and receive it so that we would be like that good soil that would bear much fruit by the way that we obey your word and honor it. And so open our eyes to see the meaning of this widow's gift, the widow's offering that she gave that day, and help us to understand what its meaning is for our life. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to c- clue you in a little bit into what's happening with the preaching schedule because uh, May and June are going to be a little uh, all over the map in terms of my availability and what's going to happen here uh, at the ICC pulpit. Um, next week, <clears throat> next weekend, our firstborn child, uh, Joy, she's graduating from college. I, I can't even believe that I'm saying that. But she is actually graduating from U of I next year. And so our whole family will be going down there to celebrate her graduation. So uh, our brother Mark Rowe, who's one of the pastoral staff at Harvest, will be preaching here on uh, that Sunday. And so the following week, I will be preaching, but then toward the end of May, I'm going to actually be traveling to Indonesia, where I'll be speaking at a retreat there. And so on May 29th, uh, Pastor Peter will preach, as well as my brother Dave will come and speak on that following weekend as well. And then on June 12th, we have our graduation weekend. And so Pastor Eugene, our youth pastor, will be giving the message on that special Service. And then at the end of June, I'll be speaking at our Sister Harvest uh, retreat. And so Pastor Peter will preach once again. And so just to sort of let you know that there's going to be a little bit of uh, in and out for me in the pulpit during these next couple of summer months. Okay? Let's actually now jump into the text for this morning. Uh, and I want to start by simply saying this For those of us who've grown up in the church, which is probably many of you, Real danger in the stories in the Bible being so familiar to us that the familiarity itself causes a certain blindness that prevents us from truly understanding. And this story of the widow's offering is one of those kind of stories, I think. It's one of the earliest stories that I remember being taught as a young kid growing up in church in the Sunday school. And the way I remember it from my childhood is that the Sunday school teachers would always talk about how, um, you know, even when you give a quarter in your offering plate as a, as a little child, that God can take that quarter and he can multiply it in some awesome ways, just like this widow who Jesus acknowledged, he said, gave a lot. And I remember it was always accompanied by this illustration that the Sunday school teachers used of how there was once, I don't know if this story is true or not. I actually I, I wanted to do research as an adult to see if I could really get down to the historical truth of it. But there was supposedly this boy, young boy, who like gave a dime or a nickel or something like that for this church project that was going on. And somehow uh, everyone laughed at the kid because they looked at, oh, how cute. He's giving a nickel for this project. And apparently some millionaire saw this gift of this little child and out of that inspiration of seeing that child give, uh, gave like millions of dollars to complete the project. And so the idea was that this little boy's offering was multiplied exponentially by God because of his faithfulness in giving. And as a little boy hearing that story, I remember always thinking like, I wonder if God will do that one day with my quarter that I put in the offering plate that some millionaire is going to watch me put it in one day and then give loads and loads of money to the church inspired by my little act of obedience. Um, I don't know. The story of this widow's offering, it is often portrayed as a very beautiful and inspiring picture of sacrificial giving. But I want to argue that if you really look underneath the bones of this story, there's a lot here that should actually probably disturb us a little bit. Uh, Let me just highlight a couple of those issues that I see problematic with this story. The first is simply this, is did this widow exercise good stewardship? I want you to wrestle with the fact that this poor widow gave her last couple pennies into the offering plate. Basically, everything that she had to live on. And, and I think it's reasonable for any of us to ask, is that really what God wants? Does he approve of that kind of behavior? Uh, wouldn't it have been more responsible for that woman to save those last two pennies she had and actually buy some bread so that she could feed herself? rather than putting it into the offering plate? Isn't it almost irresponsible or reckless of her to do this? Another problem I see with this story is, by giving her money to this temple treasury, wasn't this widow just contributing to a corrupt system? Wasn't she contributing to a corrupt system? One of the things a couple months ago when I preached on the story of Jesus cleansing the temple was to unpack how corrupt the whole temple treasury system was. It was a racket. The priesthood were corrupt and they were basically stealing money from people, pressuring them into giving to the temple so that they could line their own pockets and become filthy rich. And so when this widow gives her last two pennies, it's going right into the pockets of these corrupt priests. Wouldn't it have been better if she gave it directly to some missionary who could have really used that money for God's kingdom work? Isn't there another stewardship issue here? As you can see, there's a lot of rabbit holes that we can go down when we look at this story. And it's hard to sort through all the confusion of these kind of details But we have to get to the heart of what is it that Jesus is commending by the example of this widow. I think one of the cardinal rules that we have to keep in mind whenever we study the Bible is always to look at the context. Always look at the context. In other words, if a word is confusing to you when you read the Bible, look at the surrounding sentence to try to help make sense of the meaning of that word. If a sentence is confusing, look at the surrounding paragraph that you find that sentence in to try to bring meaning to that sentence. And if the entire story is confusing, look at the surrounding stories that will often shed some light. You see, because when the gospel writers like Luke put together their book, they didn't just assemble this as a random string of stories. They often tied stories together to develop certain themes that they wanted to teach us. A good example of this is found in Luke chapter 18. We have a series of four stories. In verses 22 to 25, there is the story of Jesus calming the storm as he and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And then in verses 26 to 29, it's followed by the story of Jesus casting out these demons out of this demon-possessed man. And then that story is followed by a healing of a woman that has this bleeding disorder. And then lastly, in verses 40 to 56, there is this final story of Jesus raising a Jewish leader's daughter from the dead. Actually, raising her from the dead. When you look at the string of these four stories, it's easy to think, they're just random. They have, they have nothing in common. But if you look a little more closely, what you realize is that th- there is a thematic tie into all of these. Luke strings these four stories together to basically say that these stories teach us that Jesus had authority over everything, every aspect of creation, from the weather to demons to sickness to even death itself. Christ has authority over all of those things. And so these stories that are next to the stories you're looking at can often help shed light on the story you're looking at in that moment. And so it's no accident that the story of the widow's offering happens to follow right on the heels of Jesus warning the people of the greed of these scribes. These scribes were among Israel's religious leaders. Uh, You can go ahead and advance the slide. Yeah. These scribes were part of the priesthood, but they were also closely associated with the Pharisees. And they carried a lot of authority because of their knowledge of the Bible. And outwardly, they looked like they were the most righteous, the most faithful in all of Israel. But Jesus exposes them for their phoniness. He says underneath all of their religious trappings, their long robes, their long prayers... Are much darker motives. For all of their show of religiosity, what they really crave is the respect of people. They love the special seats in every party and special social gathering that they go to. They love how people look at them and honor them. And tellingly, what Jesus says is that these long prayers are just a cover up, a pretense. For what's really in their heart, which he says is greed. What really exposes their true heart is their greed. He says they prey on poor widows. We're not sure what this means that they devour their houses. But some scholars speculate that what this meant was that these were sort of legal experts. And so they would use their legal knowledge to basically con these widows out of their homes. Another suggestion has been that they pressured these widows, using religion to say you ought to give everything to God, even your own house. You ought to give as an offering to God. And so some of these devout widows may have done that very thing and given their houses to God, except that the truth was these priests were just cashing in on those properties and getting rich off of those sacrifices. And so the bottom line is Jesus is making a contrast between these two sets of people. On the one hand are these religious leaders, these rich people, who act like they have devotion to God, but the truth is they're really living for the love of money. And then you have, in contrast, someone like this poor widow who has nothing, And yet even in her destitute state, gives what little she has as an offering to God. Mark's account gives us a little more detail into the story than Luke does. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. What historians tell us is that in those days, like the Passover that they were celebrating, what the priests would do is they would line up at the temple 13 huge offering boxes. And they all had these tiny little openings, I think for security, but also for show. It's kind of like going to Coinstar, you know? You got to drop your coins in there. It probably made a lot of clanging noises. It was very attention-getting. And so Jesus sits opposite these offering places and just watches the the show that's going on and watches all these rich people get up there and drops their coins one after another because they didn't have paper money back then. And each of them are making a big show of what they're giving to God. And he's watching all of that. And then along comes this poor widow who is barely scraping by and yet she gives what little she has to live on. That phrase, all that she has to live on, can more literally be translated as, all that remained of her life. In other words, that's all she had. After that, she was broke. And yet, she offers this to God as an act of faith and devotion. That's sort of the story in a nutshell. I want to try to get deeper now and take a look at what it is exactly that Jesus is trying to teach us through this contrast. Because I want to say this, often when we talk about money in the church, we jump pretty quickly to the numbers, don't we? We talk about tithing. We talk about generosity. We talk about giving percentages, about how much you can spend on your, on your house or on a car, or whether it's biblical to save for retirement. But what Jesus does is whenever he talks about money, He always addresses the heart. He always addresses the heart. John Piper says, the currency itself is not the issue we must wrestle with. There is something much more foundational, something far deeper than wealth or poverty, far deeper than greed or generosity. In some, then, money is one cultural symbol that we use to show what we value. It is a means by which we show where our treasure is, who our treasure is. The use of money is an act of worship, either of Christ or of something else. In other words, what Piper is saying is what money offers us is an opportunity to reveal to ourselves and to others and to God what really matters to us in life. It, in other words, exposes our heart what we really love, what we really trust, because that's where your money is going to go. That's the implication of Jesus exposing these leaders, saying it looks like they're devoted to me. But the truth is they're devoted to money. They devour widows' houses. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 says this, For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's the key. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Saying, we knew better. We had a revelation that God is the one to be worshipped. He alone is the one that is worthy of that devotion, but in our twisted, sinful hearts, what ultimately ended up happening is we fell in love and began to worship substitutes, cheap substitutes, images, things that seem to promise the same things that God promises. And the truth is the way to get those things is money. This is the truth that lies at the heart of all of our struggles with money. Tim Keller says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. I want to ask you that this morning. What would that be in your life? That if you were to lose it, you would pretty much say, I don't even see what the point is of going on. This life wouldn't even be I think, frankly, I might even become suicidal if that were to be taken from me. Because the point of Romans 1 is that reveals what your God is, what you really worship in your life. A woman once wrote to John Piper to confess uh, an addiction to online shopping. And so she said, you know, I'm materialistic, I admit it, and I don't know how to fix this addiction that I have. And in his blog response, uh, he wrote his own confession and his struggle with materialism. And he wrote, I've tasted enough of what you're talking about, Megan, that's the girl that wrote to him, "uh, that I think I can speak with some sense of empathy Even though for me, the temptation is almost entirely restricted to books. You get a sense of what a nerd he is, you know. Um, I love to look at books online. It gives me pleasure to click on the purchase of a book. And when the box shows up in the mail, I'm sure I feel some of the same pleasure that you are talking about. So I have to guard my soul here. These are very treacherous waters we are swimming in. As I have tried to analyze my own heart and read about the experience of others and look at the way things are marketed to us, it seems to me that the pleasure arises mainly from the elusive sense that buying and receiving things is life giving or providing a sense of empowerment. When a book arrives, for example, there is the amorphous, euphoric sense that life will be better for me, my knowledge will be larger my influence will be greater. Some of my weakness and limitation of ignorance will be overcome. In other words, there is a sense that somehow my life will go better and I will be a stronger, capable person. As Piper rightly identifies, what all of these things that we have are in common, whether it's books or anything else, is that The things that we long for that we purchase through money are not just casual interests or passing hobbies. As he says, the truth is if we're really honest with ourselves, is they are life-giving. They are life-giving. When I buy these things, when I purchase them, it gives me a boost, a sense of worth, a sense of joy that makes it worth living another day, makes me feel happy inside. The question, in other words, that we need to ask ourselves, where we need to begin is honestly, what does money represent in my life? What does it represent for me? Yes, they're stuff, they're things, but what do these things represent in my life? What are the promises that this stuff holds out for me that I'm so desperate for? Is it security? Is it hope? Is that happiness? Unless we begin at that place, all the exploration about greed or generosity or giving levels doesn't do anything more than scratch the surface of the issue. Because that's exactly what Jesus is highlighting, is outwardly these scribes, these wealthy people, I mean, they looked like they were being generous. They were giving huge amounts, actually. But Jesus says, when you scratch underneath that surface, what they were doing was they were giving out of their excess what they thought they could give to get by and clear their conscience. But the truth is, they were living for money. It's interesting, when I read Piper's confession, I actually felt a lump in my throat because I felt actually very guilty because I have often those same feelings about books, okay? My personal library is huge, okay? Now, that's not it, but it's close to it, okay? My, my, my library doesn't look very far off from that, all right? During my years as a missionary in Africa, I actually gave over 75% of my library away to the seminary where I was teaching. And even after that, I still own hundreds of books, okay? Now, listen, there is no doubt that these books have been used for good, okay? Okay? The knowledge I've gained from these books has helped me to be a better teacher. But I would not be fully honest with you if I didn't acknowledge that there is a darker side to my love of books, okay? The sense of worth and fulfillment that books have given me over the years. And I wish it was even as noble as just a pure hunger for knowledge. Like, oh, crucify me. I love knowledge, you know? Like, that sounds so noble, but it's not even that. You have no idea how excited I get when that Amazon box shows up in the mail, you know? I love fingering a brand new book on the spine that has never been cracked open. The pristine book cover. And I love it when somebody comes into my office and sees that sheer wall of books and the amazement in their eyes. Wow. Wow this guy is smart, you know? When they look at all of those books, it goes, yeah, right, have a seat here, you know? It's basically a sledgehammer that says, whatever I'm going to tell you is smarter than what you think about yourself, right? (laughs) This is the sneaky nature of materialism. It presents itself in so many more justifiable disguises. That's why, regarding this particular sin of greed, Jesus warns people in Luke 12, verse 15, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Watch out! Because there's something so sneaky, so subtle about greed. There's so many ways to justify your purchases that makes it seem like these are good things, but what Jesus keeps unrelentingly asking us to do is saying underneath those things you're buying, look at your heart. Look at your heart. What does this reveal about your heart? Some of you unapologetically laughed at me when you heard about me confessing about my books, but I bet you I could laugh about something you love, right? Right? Maybe it's a closet filled with shoes. Maybe it's the latest gadget that you have to own. Maybe it's all your gym memberships and athletic gear. You see, it's going to come in some form or another, isn't it? What about when you spend on your children? That hits a sore spot, doesn't it? It's not materialism if it's spent on your children, right? Listen, Of course, you ought to be loving parents. And as loving parents, you ought to take care of your children. But maybe all of those shopping trips, buying endless stuff for your kids, goes beyond simply taking care of their needs. Maybe that warm feeling that you get every time you buy a new cute outfit for your baby, what that's really revealing is that all of your hopes and dreams are invested in them, even more than God. Your whole life, the entirety, the sum of your future rests in the destiny of your kids. Home improvement projects. It's another one, right? It doesn't feel materialistic if it's to redo your kitchen. It's falling apart. But maybe one project after another is revealing that your sense of security and well-being is in a well-maintained home. As long as I can keep this house together, I feel safe in this uncertain world. It's my castle. It's my kingdom. You see, when it comes to money, you have to look beyond the superficial issue of just possession. It's always an issue of worship, God says. Dallas Willard writes, To trust in riches is to count upon them to obtain or secure what we treasure most. It is to think that they will bring us happiness and well-being. If we trust in riches, we will also love them and come to serve them. In our actions, we will place them above the truly ultimate value of human life, even above God and his service. You see, because materialism is always a battle over worship, the way that we fight materialism is not with a calculator or a spreadsheet, but through worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 to 6 says this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You see, the writer of Hebrews in these verses is making a connection between this freedom from the love of money, of really being content in our heart, and the promises that God offers us to take care of our needs. I believe that is the faith that this poor widow displayed that day when she put her last two coins into that offering plate. It was an expression that, in my poverty, God will take care of me. He will ultimately be true to His promises to me. In other words, I think the only way to truly live freed of materialism is to realize that in Jesus we have everything that we need. Everything that we can long for and hunger for satisfaction is met by God and God alone. Piper writes, These are the two great heart conditions in human life. The heart that values God over all or values something else more. One heart is happy in light of God's supreme worth. The other heart is happy in the darkness, fondling images of the real thing, thinking we have found a great treasure. The mark of the true Christian is not that sin never gets the upper hand. Not that our desires are flawlessly Godward. The mark of the Christian is that at the root of our lives is this new treasuring of God over all things. As we have met him in Jesus Christ, he has assumed a place in our hearts that pulls us back again and again to renew our devotion to him as supreme. That's the way Piper summarized. it. There's just two hearts in this world. Hearts that have discovered that God is is all that we need and hearts that are still searching, still looking, still trying to find the answer for the emptiness that is inside our souls. That's the bottom line of materialism. And the only freedom from this love of money is to discover there is one that is more satisfying than all of the things that money can buy. Without that experience of God in our life, there's no way we can model after this poor widow and be this kind of sacrificial, generous giver for his work. 1 Thessalonians, I'll just close with this. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, Paul says this amazing truth. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's the wonderful truth that Christians cling to. Everything is yours already in Jesus, because everything belongs to your heavenly Father. Whatever it is that you need, ask. He knows your needs, and he will provide for you. That's why we don't have to fret or worry about money. That's why we don't have to hoard or struggle to try to get everything that we can out of this life. It's an invitation to walk by faith, holding the hand of Jesus, and saying, listen, I may not be wealthy in this world, but I'm going to trust you on your promises to me, God. And when I'm in need, I'm going to ask for it. And I'm going to hold you to your promises. And Jesus says, it's all yours already. When you need it, I'll give it to you. Watch and see. Test me. See if I don't. Do this in your life. And I think ultimately that is the invitation we're given by to this widow's offering this morning. There's only two places to go with this. Either I'm going to fight and claw and do everything I can to try to secure a future for myself and my future generations, or I'm going to just trust God and believe that He will care for me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Let's pray. As we uh, come before God this morning, just want to invite you to a reflection on the truth of this passage. Because if there is any cosmic battle that is going on in our hearts, as well as in the world today, I think it is often this issue over God and money. It's interesting how often Scripture portrays money as a God. It really is much more than just economics. It's much more than numbers. Talk about money really brings us to the realm of worship, worship. And I just want to ask you that question that I asked earlier in the message. Where do you look to try to find happiness, security? Where do you look to find meaning, Fulfillment, worth. As Romans 1, 21 to 23 says, God has revealed himself, immortal, glorious. And yet, because of our wayward hearts, we've chosen this willful blindness to that glory, his worth. And instead have chosen to follow cheap substitutes, counterfeit gods, as Tim Keller says, that can never satisfy I know that there is this sort of stereotype of church, religion, as seeming to be just uh, a racket of constantly asking for your money. And the truth is, there's a reality to that. There's a darker side to religious leaders who use faith to feed their soul-starving craving for money. But when we really look at what Scripture teaches us, what we find is a very different picture of hearts that are truly freed from this bondage. To say, you know, money isn't everything. Money will not be my God. There's only one in this world that will take care of my needs and meet my deepest longings. And to Him, I want to surrender everything. And out of that flows a life of sacrifice and generosity, but it's also not a life of just knowing misery and poverty. It's a life of riches and joy and that surrender. My prayer is that you would receive that invitation that God gives to you to not make money your God, but make Christ alone Lord of your life because he's the only one that will prove to be true to the very end. Would you just pray and meditate on the truth for a couple of minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response through a couple closing songs. Let's pray.